Civil War Talk Radio with host Jerry Prokopovich. Our program covers all aspects of Civil War history, from the battlefields to the home fronts, and features guest experts, plus insight from your host as they discuss the most critical period in American history. Now, here is your host, Jerry Prokopovich. This is Jerry Prokopovich with Civil War Talk Radio. The story of the Battle of Gettysburg is one most of us know well from books and from visits to its remarkably preserved and presented battlefield. Many of us first went there decades ago, and many of us have returned many times over the years and seen how the battlefield has changed. Tonight, we'll learn the fascinating story of why those changes occurred and what was there before any of us saw it for the first time. Stay with us to hear park ranger turned history professor Jennifer Murray, author of On a Great Battlefield, The Making, Management, and Memory of Gettysburg National Military Park, 1933-2013. to That's tonight on Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live. The leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Are you ready for a disaster? If you are like many people in the world, that answer may sadly be no. Disasters happen unexpectedly to people just like you every day. Tune into Preparing for the Unexpected with business continuity and disaster planning expert Alex Fullick. The show will not only help you better prepare for a disaster itself, but also to prepare you, your place of employment, and community for the aftermath emotionally, financially, and with a better level of awareness and a stronger feeling of resiliency. Tune in Thursdays at 9 a.m. Eastern Time, 6 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network wherever you go. In addition to listening live, you can check out information about your favorite talk show hosts, discover new talk show personalities, add shows to your list of favorites, and listen to all of our show archives on demand, all from your iOS, Amazon Kindle, or Android device. Download it from the Apple App Store, Amazon, or Google Play, and get ready to tune in. The Voice America mobile app, powered by Aircast. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich coming to you from the third floor of the Brewster Building on the campus of East Carolina University in Greenville, North Carolina, part of the UNC system but not speaking for anybody but myself, not UNC or ECU or anybody at all, just myself, not the Gettysburg National Military Park, nor will my guest speak for anyone but herself tonight, as we always do. And as many of you know, because many people uh, apparently listen to the show at one time or another, I just got the statistics this morning, and we had some 59,000 hits in October of 2018. We're now in November 2018, as we record this tonight, and that was the largest month ever. Uh, The trend continues to go upward. Only a small, tiny fraction of that number of people listens to the show live on Wednesday evenings as we Uh, talk here right now. Last week I got to do that because, uh, uh, you know, if you were listening, last week's show was recorded at Gettysburg during the uh, Civil War Institute last fall, or I'm sorry, last summer, uh, in July of uh, June of of 2018. And then, yes, last week during the day I recorded the introductory bit and then uh, our Wizards of Engineering at Voice America put it all together and made it seamless. Hopefully you're listening the modern way. You've downloaded this and you're multitasking, washing the dishes, driving from place to place, or mowing the lawn. Those seem to be three activities many listeners enjoy doing while listening to the show. 
So it is November of 2018, crazy time of the academic semester, exams starting to come in, midterms, term papers being turned in, all kinds of things to do. The the busy time of the semester is approaching as we head toward Thanksgiving. And it's also uh, election season that just ended on Tuesday, yesterday. Uh, glad that is over so we can now all concentrate fully on Civil War talk radio and college football, where East Carolina is unfortunately headed nowhere this season. Uh, rumor is that our, we can't afford to fire the football coach because we're already paying the previous fired football coach, but they may be looking for a new chancellor pretty soon. Uh, it's not just the bad football team why why he might leave, but uh, that's the rumor we're hearing. Uh can't say more than that. So we turn instead to my alma mater, University of Michigan, who thundered over the hapless life forms of Penn State last Saturday. And uh, my big fear now is that our rivals in Columbus might lose one of their remaining games so that their entire season will be, have become meaningless except for beating Michigan, which they, they tend to do regularly. And, and we don't want them to have any extra motivation this year. But we'll see. Tonight we're talking about the Gettysburg battlefield, and there are many reasons to go to Gettysburg uh, that I mention every week to you. And I'll remind you, uh, this year, November 16th through 18, 2018, the Lincoln Forum meets there. It's a really interesting event, chance to hear from a lot of people uh, in the Lincoln scholarly community and uh, uh, just meet a lot of interesting people who are interested in Lincoln and also tour the battlefield, do other things. Next May, 18 through the 26th, this hallowed ground takes off for our annual tour. The Stephen Ambrose Historical Tours presents that tour. They offer this hallowed ground several times a year, but I'll be doing the one May 18 through 26, and I would love to meet some of you, come along and do that, and we'll we'll have a jolly time that's not the right word. We'll have a meaningful time uh, going to many battlefields, not just Gettysburg. And, and uh, I always learn something from it, and, and I know you would too. And finally, the Institute, the Civil War Institute that meets every year at Gettysburg College is June 14 through 19 of 2019. Did I say 2018 for this hallowed ground? It's 2019. We're looking ahead a year. So check out the Civil War Institute as well. That's online. And as always, go to www.impedimentsofwar.org. Find out who's going to be on the show next. Next week, Jeffrey Hunt takes us to the post-Gettysburg era. Uh, he has written about Meade and Lee after Gettysburg, uh, the forgotten end, the forgotten final stage of the Gettysburg campaign, taking place July 14 through 31 of 1863, an interesting uh, concept and idea. I'm looking forward to reading that and talking it over with him. There is also, uh, there's no show after that. It'll it'll be Thanksgiving week, but on the 28th of November, we return with Deirdre Cooper Owens, author of Medical Bondage, Race, Gender, and the Origins of American Gynecology, uh, uh, based on, uh, she got this invasion, invitation uh, to the show in part based on a talk she gave at the Institute at Gettysburg last year. Uh, you'll be, you'll learn a lot, I guarantee you, from, from this. On December 5th, Christopher Teeters will be with us. His book is Practical Liberators, Union Officers in the Western Theater During the Civil War. It's a topic I've written a little bit about myself. I'm very anxious to hear what he has to say, and we'll finish up the fall semester with uh, the head of the Gettysburg Civil War Institute. You would think I'm being paid by the Institute, which I'm not, uh, but Peter Carmichael will be our guest. He has a brand new book, The War for the Common Soldier, just came out, and uh, I've got a pre-publication copy here in front of me, uh, and I'm just very anxious to read that and uh, yeah, uncorrected proof, not for resale. I've got to get them to send me the real one now. Uh, but we will be talking with him on December 12th. But tonight we talk with Professor uh, Jennifer Murray, 
at Oklahoma State University, I believe. Let's find out if that's accurate. Uh, Jen, are you there? Yes, I'm there. Hi, Jerry. How are you doing? I am well. How are you? Thanks for having me tonight. Oh, glad to have you. Um, you and I got to talk a little bit at the Institute last June, and at that time you were transitioning, I think, between institutions. Is that right? That's correct. I was finishing up a stint at University of Virginia's College at Wise in the far southwestern part of the state, and I was in the process of moving out to Stillwater, Oklahoma, to join the faculty at Oklahoma State as their military historian and Civil War historian. That is very cool. Uh, the idea of being a Civil War historian or military historian is one that a lot of uh, a lot of people, when I tell them I get to do that, they they say, "Oh, I wish I could do that." I think I'll I'll teach history when I retire, and I say, "Yeah, I think I'll do surgery when I retire," because um, you know anyone can do this job. That's right. Uh, but you uh, you have not always been in the academic end of history. You've also been involved in public history. Is that also correct? Yeah, that's correct. I worked for the National Park Service for nine summers at Gettysburg. I was a seasonal park ranger. I started working there in 2002. I did an internship between my junior and senior year of my undergraduate program, and then ended up going back through the summer of 2010, working uh, for the Park Service during the like mid mid May to mid August, um, which is an amazing experience and certainly defined my career and really fostered my interest in the Civil War and Gettysburg, particularly and certainly led to what we'll be talking about tonight, the, uh, the book topic. Well, so it's, it's personal for you. It, it, it's personal for me. I first went there in 1969 as a, it would have been 10 or 11 years old. Uh, and I, I'm sure a lot of listeners have been to Gettysburg many times. And it, it's a place that, as, as you point out in your book, holds a unique position in the American psyche, I guess I would say. Uh, let me start with uh, a question. We just have a minute or two before the break, so we'll launch this and we can continue afterward. Uh, in the introduction, I said we would talk about changes to the battlefield, and a lot of people, when they hear the word changes in connection with anything historic, like a battlefield, they think, bad, don't want to change. Uh, is it Especially after reading your book, I have to ask, is it possible for a battlefield to be static? Uh, or is, is change really the only possible condition of existence? Well, I think your assessment is exactly right, that people think that historic landscapes are static. And particularly Gettysburg should be static because we have this sacred association or this this reverence associated with Gettysburg. But in fact, that's not been the case, and it hasn't been for the last 150 years. And what emerges in my book is that Gettysburg, as a historic landscape, is incredibly dynamic, and it's constantly changing. And the way that it changed, particularly in the last 20 years, beginning in the 1990s, has been incredibly fruitful and positive. And for you and some of the visitors who've been, or the listeners who've been going to Gettysburg over the last decades, they've seen these changes unfold and emerge. And what you see in 2018 is a landscape that looks a lot more accurate in many ways than it ever had to what the Union and Confederate soldiers would have seen in July of 1863. Well, I think that's a, a important point that the change, re- much of the change has been really positive uh, that I've observed in the last uh, decade or so. And yet it, it, it it's, so, so it's, it's good to have a book with a happy ending. Civil War books, of course, you know, deal with a, a tragic, uh, painful, costly era in our history. And often preservation books end with the, the demolition or the urban sprawl or the uh, 
right. negative consequences to something. Right. And, and Gettysburg has been a, a success story in many ways. So what we'll do is take a short break now and come right back and, and start with the, the Park Service taking over Gettysburg. Great, uh, yeah. And, and so we'll, we'll do that in just a moment. Great. Our guest tonight, Jennifer Murray, is the author of On a Great Battlefield, the Gettysburg, say it correctly, the Making Management and Memory of Gettysburg National Military Park, 1933 to 2013. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, and this is Civil War Talk Radio. <laughs> Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. Psych Up Live with host Dr. Suzanne Phillips is an insider's glimpse at a life from a psychological perspective. It's a look at what matters to us. Why do we laugh? How do we cope with stress? Are men and women really that different? What is it about our relationships? How are they formed? How they work out? And why they sometimes don't? Every week is something new to engage you. Psych Up Live is heard every Thursday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We'll turn up your perspective on life. All around the outermost rim of the shield, he set the mighty stream of the river Oceanus, creating Achilles' shield in Homer's The Iliad, Book 18. Rachel Carson, in The Sea Around Us, said, All at last, return to the sea, to Oceanus, the ocean river, like the ever-flowing stream of time, the beginning and the end. Moyer's Environmental Dialogues with Dr. Rob Moyer offers lively dialogue and revealing narrative inquiry into how individuals are overcoming obstacles and creating a greener and blue planet Earth. Tune in Thursdays at 3 p.m. Eastern, 12 noon Pacific on the Voice America Variety Channel. The latest business information is made simple with the Voice America Business Network. The professionals in the business world bring you live talk radio shows featuring an array of business topics, strategies for building wealth, sales and marketing, stock trading, investing, and business technology. Voice America business hosts are professionals in their fields and bring to the airwaves weekly business discussions that offer up-to-date information, advice, and education. The Voice America Business Network. The bottom line in business talk. Streaming live. The leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu.edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jennifer, I'm not Jennifer Murray, I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking with Jennifer Murray, who is the author of On a Great Battlefield, The Making, Management, and Memory of Gettysburg National Military Park, 1933 to 2013. Uh, Jen, as we said in the first segment, you worked at Gettysburg for uh, a number of summers before uh, going to study uh, history at the the doctoral level. You teach now at Oklahoma State. Uh, the and and the the story of Gettysburg that you tell in this book is really an intriguing one and. Uh, as I said earlier, that one that touches personal chords uh, certainly did for me, and I'm sure will for many other readers. When you see the picture of the Stuckies at the peach orchard that used to sell the caramel logs, uh, I've been there. Uh, that that was that was still there when I first visited uh, as a child, and and thankfully it's gone. And then you can now see the view shed properly from. Uh, from the peach orchard, but it, it tells a great story. Your story begins in 1933. Why did you pick that date? Well, I started my story in 1933 because that's when the National Park Service assumed control of Gettysburg National Military Park. And it's it's worth noting, too, I was working on this initially as a 
dissertation topic, and I told my dissertation director, um, Ken No at Auburn, that mm-hmm. I was going to write something on on Gettysburg. And Ken says, you know, well, that's great, Jen. That's exactly what we need is an is another yet another work <laughs> on the Battle of Gettysburg. Exactly. And depending on how you want to count books and monographs on Gettysburg, there's at least seven thousand and a comparable amount of you know essays and journal pieces and glossy magazines and such. So we have a lot um, a voluminous record on Gettysburg, the, the battle, and we also have a pretty good sense in the historiography about the years following the battle, um, the veterans' eras leading up to the 20th century. There's been some good work done on that. Um, Carol Reardon and Amy Kinsel and Jim Weeks have produced some pretty good books on the the commemorative era by the veterans. But what I found in looking at the historiography and thinking about a dissertation topic is that we didn't have an understanding of what Gettysburg, the battlefield, was like in the 20th century. So my work starts in 1933, as I mentioned, because that's when uh, President Franklin D. Roosevelt signed the executive order that added Gettysburg National Military Park as well as 57 other historical sites into the purview or the stewardship of the National Park Service. And that provided a, a clear starting point to carry the story through into the sesquicentennial ending in 2013. And so before that, uh, who ran the park? So Gettysburg had two uh, stewards prior to that. The first would be the Gettysburg Battlefield Memorial Association, and that preservation entity was formed in 1864. And that was a grassroots movement led by local officials, um, David McConaughey, most prominently, Gettysburg lawyer. And it was really a grassroots effort by the Pennsylvanians. And that's remarkable, because that's 1864, so just a year after the battle, and the Civil War is still raging and and would for another two years. And the GBMA did yeoman's work. Um, They were very good about acquiring land um, with limited resources. They acquired 522 acres, and they also oversaw the placement of some of the battlefield's first monuments and markers and helped lay out the first avenues or the, the park roads. But they didn't have a lot of federal funding or federal backing, and their landscape, their their acquisitions was really confined to the Union side of the battlefield along Cemetery Ridge. So in 1895, they turned stewardship over to the U.S. War Department. And Gettysburg at that time, from 1895 until 1933, is ran by the U.S. War Department. a voluminous amount of commemorative activity. Of course, the 1913 reunion falls under their management as well. The park at that time is run by two Union veterans and one Confederate veterans, park commissioners, people like John Nicholson, Emmer Cope. And then in 18, uh, 1933, it's transferred to the National Park Service, which wasn't a new agency. As you know, um, the National Park mm-hmm. Service was established in 1916, but it was really a, a Western agency that didn't have a lot of experience in managing and preserving historic landscapes. So you see the first Park Service years and rounds of superintendents really struggling to reconcile a management philosophy that works on a historic landscape like Gettysburg. Why well, not? That was really a fascinating part of the book to learn about the the early uh, you know first superintendent the the idea that there was not a clear philosophy that, that was this supposed to be a a park as in a recreational park or an aesthetic landscape to admire right. or a historical place and that right. seems to be a theme that runs through the whole book is, is that there's really not a clear philosophy <laughs> that's right that is right um what struck me on that point, and you're exactly right, is that Gettysburg has had 10 superintendents between 1933 and 2010, and now they have interim superintendents 
the 11th coming in in 2010, leading him through the sesquicentennial. But the individual superintendent had so much clout in how Gettysburg was managed and their background shaped how Gettysburg was managed. Um, James McConaughey, the first superintendent, is a great example of that. But the National Park Service allows for a lot of latitude for individual sites to be managed to their unique interests and their unique resources. They don't have a unifying, at least at at the time period I was writing in, the 20th Mm -hmm. century, they didn't have a unifying management standard. So you could have someone like McConaughey in the 1930s who's a landscape architect by training, and he says, let's plant trees all around these monuments so no one can see them. It'll be more beautiful that way. I couldn't believe that. That's right, yeah. He's a Harvard graduate, landscape architect, exactly as you mentioned. His background was all in, um, we'd kind of call it parks and recreation today, Mm -hmm. and that's how he... That's how he viewed the park. He saw it as a a multi-use landscape. Um, Scenic beauty was really important to him. You mentioned about putting um, monuments as kind of secondary and kind of hiding them around ornamental trees. And um, if you read through the Gettysburg Times, the newspapers in the 1930s, you'll see the Park Service promoting that visitors come to the battlefield to see rosebuds and the dogwoods and take take a tour down to Devil's Den to look at the beautiful foliage in the fall. And it's really incongruent to how we see the park service acting today and how we associate with the battlefield today in the 21st century. But that was McConaughey's philosophy in the 1930s. The uh, Another tidbit that I found fascinating was the involvement of the, the CCC, the Civilian Conservation Corps, uh, at Gettysburg, which was just teaching uh, the undergraduates here about that in the, the introductory survey and discussing the, the racial segregation practiced within that organization. And I learned from your book that there were, in fact, officers, there were black officers as well as black workers in the CCC, but only at one or two places, and one of them is Gettysburg. That's right. That's right. One of the things that struck me in researching for the book is the way that outside events, political or social or cultural trends, influenced the management at Gettysburg. (laughs) And while the nation struggled through the Great Depression and high unemployment rates, um, the Great Depression, with the infusion of money from the New Deal, was a really prosperous time at Gettysburg. And those make-work projects that we talk about and make our undergrads remember all those alphabet agencies, Mm -hmm. um, Gettysburg hosted um, the WPA, the PWA, but most notably, as you mentioned, the the CCC camps, um, of which there are two of them. Um, One is at was at Pitzer Woods, um, which is now where the Park Amphitheater is, where the Longstreet Memorial is at, and one at McMillan Woods, a little bit further north on Seminary Ridge. And the federal government earmarked or pin, pinned Gettysburg to host uh, black laborers at these camps, which in of itself was not particularly unique. Um, mm-hmm. Tim Smith writes about Shiloh, National Military Park hosting black laborers and different state parks do. There's some state parks in Pennsylvania who also have black laborers. Um, But Gettysburg is different in that their officers are also African-American. And that was designed um, deliberately. It was done that way. And in 1936, um, his name is Captain Frederick Slade. He is the black officer who arrives to Gettysburg to manage these CCC camps. Now, the, uh, at the time that this was happening, you, you've got really no other facility on the battlefield. There's no visitor center at this point, for example. Right. Uh, so what, uh, how, how does a visitor center come to be at Gettysburg? So in the 1930s, the Park Service headquarters would be on Baltimore Street in the post office building. They had a a small space allocated to them, no room for a museum or any real substantive 
interpretation. And it's not until the Mission 66 project, which moves us into the 1960s, that the National Park Service gets um, a a visitor center. Um, It's the Cyclorama building that I think Mm. your listeners would know it more familiarly as, but that was their main visitor center that opened in 1962, kind of with a soft opening, and then the grand opening in 1963 for the centennial. The Park Service then acquired probably what you would term the the visitor center directly across from the Soldiers National Cemetery. Um, About a decade later, they acquired that in the 1970s. And before the Park Service acquired it, that was the Rosensteel building, um, where they also had, of course, a large museum. And that's much of what the Park Service collection is today, is the, the Rosensteel collection that they inherited when they acquired the building in the 70s. So for listeners old enough to remember that that building, that, that house that was on some backside of Cemetery Hill, that with, with the cases upon cases of muskets yeah. or pistols or bayonets, um, uh, just the, the uh, object-driven philosophy of the early 20th century museum-style presentation, uh, that was there. And, and the, the great white hockey puck, the great circular building right on top of Cemetery Ridge that held the cyclorama. Uh, it, it, those are examples of two things that aren't there anymore that have just disappeared in the last two decades. That's right. Uh, but they certainly dominated the, uh, the landscape at the time. Uh, there, there, boy, there are so many things that, that just really impressed me, uh, uh, sometimes shocked me to learn. During World War II, uh, Gettysburg participates in the war effort by contributing to scrap drives. Uh, That's right. They almost gave the whole place away uh, to, to yeah. melt down all the statues. Can That's you right. talk about that? That's right. And again, I go back to thinking about the way in which contemporary events influenced the management of Gettysburg and also how Americans responded to it. But you're exactly right. Gettysburg National Military Park donated over 18 tons of scrap to the war effort to build these liberty ships and the arsenal of democracy that Roosevelt Mm -hmm. promised. And one of the more interesting documents that I came across was an internal document written at Gettysburg that was a plan to completely disassemble the commemorative landmarks at Gettysburg if the war escalated that bad that the government needed more scrap metals. And they had prioritized monuments to go first and monuments to go last. And the ones, what struck me about that document is, yes, the disassembling of the commemorative landscape, but the monuments that they were going to hold last, that they wanted to hold on to as long as possible, were three uh, state monuments, and they were all Confederate monuments. It was the the Virginia Memorial, the Alabama Memorial, and the North Carolina Memorial that they put at the very, very bottom of their hierarchy to disassemble and melt down should the war effort require it. Well, fortunately it didn't. It didn't, um, and they justified that because they were such great representations of art. The artistic mm. merit rendered those mm. monuments valuable. Now, they they did, however, donate a lot of scrap metal, including some, some cannon barrels. Yeah, they do. And if you um, maybe see some historic photographs on the battlefield, you'll, you'll note that there was much more ornamentation on the battlefield than what we see today. The um, cannon balls that would be constructed in the shape of a pyramid, they were a feature of the battlefield up until this time, until the 1930s and 40s. The spherical shells, um, they were they were scrapped and donated as well to the scrap drive. So it was it was a really um, systematic and large undertaking to um, donate those materials to the war to the war drive, along with signage, some surplus signage, and some trucks and kind of miscellaneous material. But the commemorative landscape certainly felt the hard hand of war in the 1940s. Wow. Now, one group that probably would not have been disappointed to see signage disappear would be the the LBG, the Licensed Battlefield Guides. And your book 
talks uh, a fair amount about the conflict between the, the guides and the park service. So what we'll do now with that teaser is take another short break and come back and find out about the mini battle of Gettysburg between the LBG and the NPS. When we talk more with our guest tonight, Jennifer Murray, author of On a Great Battlefield, The Making, Management, and Memory of Gettysburg National Military Park, 1933-2013. to 2013. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, and this is Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live. The leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com Attention. If you're a parent, educator, social worker, or civic or religious leader, the most important program you'll hear this week is Exploited. Crimes Against Humanity. Host Opal Singleton and her guest show how our children and others are being dangerously lured by predators through the dark web, social media apps, and games. Beyond that, the program looks at trends in human trafficking and more. You'll never think of the Internet the same way again. Listen Thursdays at 7 a.m. Pacific Time, 10 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. If you think you've seen online TV before, let us surprise you. VoiceAmerica.tv is online now. The leader in live Internet talk radio has done it again. Multiple channels, a state-of-the-art viewing experience, live and on-demand programs streaming 24 hours a day. It's exactly what you want, when you want it. VoiceAmerica.tv. From health and wellness to business, sports, and everything in between. Discover our new world. Visit VoiceAmerica.tv now and experience the future of online television. VoiceAmerica.tv. These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in your brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking today with Jennifer Murray, author of On a Great Battlefield, The Making, Management, and Memory of Gettysburg National Military Park, 1933 to 2013. And I have to tell a brief personal story, Jen, intruding on your time, but on when I first visited a battlefield, Antietam, as a 1968, it, it got me interested in studying this, learning about the Civil War. The next year, I was with my family and another family. We were visiting Gettysburg. Uh, the other family, uh, their, their dad was a friend of my dad, and, and he was also a congressman. 14th District, Michigan. Uh, so he was able to just say, we want a ranger to give us a tour of Gettysburg. And I don't think rangers normally give personal guided tours to any visitor, but we got that VIP treatment. And so we're being taken around and the, the two families are you know, nodding and looking at everything and I'm just eating it all up. But I'm terrified to say anything. And finally, we're looking at Culp's Hill and I say something about, un- there was night fighting at Culp's Hill. That was very unusual, wasn't it? And the ranger looks at me and goes, I see we have a scholar here, and starts talking to me. And we end up talking the whole rest of the time. We're discussing, you know, should Sickles have moved Third Corps out or not? You know, what, what, and he was the first adult who didn't think it was cute that I knew a lot about the Civil War, or that it was amusing, or that it was just geeky and, and, and foolish. The first adult who took me seriously and made me aware there was a whole there were other people like me who were really interested in this topic and now i'm doing it for a living he was the guy 
I don't know his name. His first name was Rick. All I know is Ranger Rick, whoever you are, (laughs) you set me on this career path. Um, So the interaction of the the Park Service staff and the public, you know, in my experience, made all the difference and and cannot be underestimated. Um, uh, Cannot be overestimated, rather. Uh, 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 But it's not always the park service people there are also the licensed battlefield guides who give many tours of the battlefield and i was unaware of the the shall we say tension between the two groups and that goes back a long way doesn't it yeah you're right on about that spot on about that the licensed battlefield guides um, they predate the park service management and the licensed battlefield guides just two years ago um, commemorated or celebrated their centennial anniversary. So they were formed, um, you know, during World War I, 1916. And you can read some of the early uh, um, anecdotes or, or kind of the uh, often quoted or repeated stories about the early guide force and the way that they would be um, really competitive and pushy and soliciting tours and how they would kind of congregate downtown at the uh, the square, the Route 30 interchange downtown, and be really aggressive and soliciting hmm. tours from some of these early visitors to the battlefield. Like like and, those windshield wiper guys in big cities uh, <laughs> who, who, you know, the homeless people who try to wipe your windshield and get a tip when you're stopped <laughs> at right. a stoplight. It, 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 I'm just picturing a guy with, with a kepi doing that. That's I'm right. sorry. Right. <laughs> uh, well, your, your, your characterization is not overstated necessarily. I've read stories about guides um, deliberately giving visitors wrong directions, and then they would come back, and they would be befuddled, and the guide would offer to take them out on a tour. You know, um, Guides who would take visitors around the battlefield and speed. Speeding was a, a, a big problem, right, as the automobile is coming out and is becoming more popular. And they would break the speed limits so they could take these people around the battlefield in, you know, 30 minutes or so and get back and get ready to do another tour um, <laughs> to gain, you know, more money. And, um, I mean, what what really emerges from all of that, and they're, they're kind of comical stories today and... I mean, the licensed battlefield guides are not always um, pleased, I guess, with my interpretation of their group that, that emerges <laughs> in the book. But the licensed battlefield guides are an incredibly powerful interest group. And at times, over the eight decades that I look at in my book, the licensed battlefield guides are antagonistic to the National Park Service and what the Park Service proposes to do. And a lot of that animosity really centered over interpretation and means to help visitors guide themselves around the battlefield. So in the 1950s, as an example, when the National Park Service is designing those uh, wayside exhibits, mm-hmm. um, the licensed battlefield guides were really vocal in opposing these interpretive waysides because they were the belief that it would minimize their need. And for the Park Service to make the battlefield more accessible, self-guided auto tour, these wayside exhibits, um, in their mind, that threatened their interest and control over the battle narrative and the battlefield. Now, another local constituency that... uh operates sometimes at cross-purposes with the Park Service. Uh, the local merchants uh, do this in particular in connection with the, the story of the National Tower. Uh, oh, yeah. That uh, opened 1974. I, I'm sure some listeners remember seeing that the Space Needle, the once adorned at the battlefield. Did You mentioned that, that the Park Service opposed it, then they agreed to let it go up. I recall hearing, maybe just by rumor, that somehow uh, then Vice President Spiro Agnew had something to do with the uh, with greasing the wheels to to allow that to happen for one of his cronies. Did you come across anything like that? Um, I'd have to double check on the the Spiro Agnew part. I know that the Park Service really worked to compromise on the location of where mm-hmm. the tower would be erected. And the initial plans for it was to go behind um, off Steinware Avenue, 
west towards Seminary Ridge along, um, we call that area the Colt, the Colt Park, if you can think about where the um, Pickett's Buffet is at and the old mm-hmm. hotel, the home sweet home. That's where the initial plan of it w- would have been. Um, that was seen as being far too intrusive onto the landscape, so it was agreed to move it to where it, it had been situated closer to um, the Baltimore Pike area. But it was a huge controversy when it went up. And it was an incredible controversy <laughs> when it went down in 2000, which is kind of the, the perfect antidote to Gettysburg. Everything is controversial and, you know, you cannot appease or uh, make all interests happy all the time. It's Lincoln told us. No, that that certainly comes comes through in the book. Uh, probably the, the biggest controversy I'm sure many listeners will be most familiar with was the interpretive controversy. Uh in 1998-99, uh, leading to the rally on the high ground seminar where the Park Service as a whole began to reinterpret Civil War battlefields everywhere and moved away from the, the reconciliationist uh, view, the sorry about the late unpleasantness, but we were all brave together view to a more sophisticated but harder to swallow view that this was a war about uh, many, many difficult things, uh, by far the most important of which was human slavery. And uh, it, it's much less fun to take a vacation that has to do with slavery than, than to do with heroism. Uh, can you talk about, uh, well, you were there, uh, for, you said from 2002 on, you, you must that's have experienced right. some of that. Yeah, that's right. I, I was there from 2002 to 2010. So... A lot of these issues unfolded that I got to see, um, the interpretation, mm-hmm. the change in the interpretation, and the landscape rehabilitation. Um, so I was fortunate to work at Gettysburg um, during this period, kind of the, the golden period under um, Dr. John Latcher, who was the superintendent at the time, and Scott Hartwig, the chief historian. Um, he was my supervisor. And really smart, brilliant leaders, good stewards of the agency doing really great things for the battlefield um, that enrich the visitor experience in ways that we had not seen prior to that. Well, let's talk about some of those uh, instead of, uh, you know, to end on some positive points. Bringing down the National Tower certainly was one, and I believe there's a YouTube video people can watch of the, the demolition with reenactors firing uh, cannon in the distance simultaneous with the collapse of the tower. That's right. Uh, but uh, tell us about some of the other things that were done to uh, uh, to improve the, the battlefield in terms of returning it to its 1863 appearance. Yeah, the landscape modifications and alterations were remarkable. And what the National Park Service did was create a plan to make the landscape look as close as possible to what Union and Confederate soldiers would have seen in 1863. And for your visitors who've been to the battlefield repeated times, they would have they would have seen these events unfold and, and have personal stories. But most remarkably, um, the Park Service removed over 500 acres of non-historic woodlots. Hmm. And the, the first cut was done in 2001 um, near the Kadori Trossel Thicket down where the first Minnesota was fighting. And subsequent years, uh, um, the next kind of big rehab project was along Warfield Ridge in the winter of 2003, um, down on the southern end of the battlefield. And they cut 90 acres of non-historic woodlots down around the Bushman farm. And you might kind of envision in your mind's eye what the slaughter pen area or the area around Devil's Den used to look like, how heavily wooded that was. Mm-hmm. And those trees, non-historic trees, were removed. That old um, CCC, which we talked about earlier, uh, the bathroom that was down there by Devil's Den <laughs> was removed. And and it was incredible. I, had, I can't tell you how many times I did tours out on the battlefield. And I would be explaining to visitors about the, the tactics and the fighting between the, the units or the regiments. Mm-hmm. And they would, they would ask, they would say, well, Jen, how, can, how could they fire through this? This terrain is just awful. You can't even see. And you show them some photographs of what the battlefield looked like, you know, 1863 or so. And it's, it's remarkable. It changed the way 
that the National Park Service interprets the battle. It changed the way that visitors experience the battle. And it makes for such a richer interpretation. Um, we, The National Park Service did not only remove non-historic woodlots, but they put in features that were historic. They replanted um, historic orchards. They did over 100 acres of that. Um, they reinstalled miles of historic fencing patterns. So you can feel, and this is to Latcher's credit and the, the management there at the 21st century, uh, pretty secure and confident that when you're standing on the Gettysburg battlefield, you're getting a reasonably accurate representation to what the landscape looked like at that time in 1863. Removed um, non-historic structures. I mentioned that Home Sweet Home <laughs> Hotel. Um, that went down in 2002. So now the fields of Pickett's Charge are completely devoid of modern intrusions. Um, the, the telephone wires and everything had been underground. Um, mm-hmm. It's remarkable. It is remarkable. It, it, it really is. I, I cannot stress enough how impressive the changes have been. Uh, the, the repeated burning of, of underbrush to keep keep right. the woodlots as clear as they would have been in 1863 when cattle ate all the underbrush uh, right. is another f- a great feature. And just was it just last year or two years ago, the, uh, the General Lee Headquarters Motel. Uh, yes. Amazing. Uh, that, that, that's beyond the scope of your book. It's at past 2013. But what a change that made. Yeah. It took my breath away when I yeah. first crested the ridge and could see yeah. over for the first time. Uh, well, it, listeners, if you've been to Gettysburg, you have to read this book uh, it, to find out what was there and be in some cases appalled by what used to be there and be impressed by what's there now uh, and find out how it all came to be. Uh, get yourself a copy of uh, On a Great Battlefield, the uh, On a Great Battlefield, the Making Management and Memory of Gettysburg National Military Park, 1933 to 2013. Uh, you will enjoy it. You'll benefit from it. And uh, if you've been there before, you'll, you'll, You'll feel it personally. It, it's a it's a great story, and Jen, I wish we had more time, but thank you so much for coming this is on great. Civil War Talk Radio. Perfect. Well, Thanks, Jerry. Thanks for having me. And and listeners, as always, thank you for listening to Civil War Talk Radio. Thank you for embarking on a part of American history this week. Civil War Talk Radio with Jerry Prokopovich can be heard live every Wednesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week.